Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Amen. Open up to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, we'll pick up at verse 47 and read into chapter 20. Please stand for the reading of God's word. And he, Jesus, was teaching daily in the temple. But the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on to every word he said. On one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him. And they spoke, saying to him, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Or who is the one who gave you this authority? Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you a question, and you tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? They reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard, but the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave, and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to another. When they heard it, they said, may it never be. But Jesus looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. So you remember that we ended with Jesus cleansing the temple. He was casting out Israelites who were profiting off the worship of God and hindering Gentiles from, from coming in. Now, and, and this again makes these actions appear to be a miracle, uh, Jesus, the text says, was teaching daily in the temple. 
So he's te- even after this time where, where they're trying to destroy him and he's done these actions, he's still there in the temple teaching. Even while the chief priests and the leading men were trying to destroy him, but the attention of the people was, it's fixed on Jesus. The people are fixed on Jesus and his words. Now the Greek in verse 48 is a little more explicit. Literally it reads, for the people, all of them were hanging on him, listening. Okay, it was Jesus. It was the Son of God that they were hanging on. Okay, and and giving their attention to. And they were doing so by listening to what he was saying. Jesus had their attention. So again, this is in the temple. This is the place where the scribes and the Pharisees taught, right? This is their place. This is where they dominated. This is where they led the attention of the people. This is where they led the discussions. Not only is this a terrible place for Jesus to hide out, it'd be like hiding out in your enemy's headquarters, But it's also the place where the scribes knew they had everyone's attention. That is what they thought anyway. So you remember the contrast made in the word of God between the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees and the teaching of Jesus? Remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we read this about the reaction of the people who heard Jesus It says this, the result was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Now, what are we to make of that? What was it about the teaching of Jesus that made it authoritative? Was it his style? Right? Was it his style contrasted with the dry rhetoric of the scribes? Many teachers of homiletics would make you think it was that. Was it his topics, you know, perfectly suited to the culture and the time of his day? Was it, or was it that when Jesus preached, there was power? And a power that put the minds of the people upon God Almighty. Right? Calvin says this, he says, In short, the evangelists mean that while the manner of teaching which then prevailed was so greatly degenerated and so extremely corrupted that it did not impress the minds of men with any reverence for God, the preaching of Christ was eminently distinguished by the divine power of the Spirit which procured for him the respect of his hearers. This is the power, or rather the majesty and authority at which the people were astonished. In other words, it impressed on their minds a reverence for God. Everywhere Jesus went, everywhere our Savior went preaching, he did so with the power of the Spirit anointing his words, but also that same Spirit working in the hearts and the minds of those who were hearing. And the end of it all was this. It was reverence for God. Reverence. For his father in heaven. Not only did did the 
the scribes and Pharisees preaching not lead to reverence for God, but instead it led the people to hatred toward God. Right? They preached in such a manner as to, to affirm their own self-righteousness rather than Jesus did, which was to destroy self-righteousness. Self-righteousness has no room for reverence for God because because self-righteousness is blind to the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. It's absolutely blind to it. And along comes Jesus, and he's preaching and speaking in a manner where sins are revealed, right? Where truth was loved above falsehood. And flattery. Where reverence for God and a true understanding of the astonishing magnitude of His grace is more precious than the little, easy to keep, ultimately damnably heavy burden that the Pharisees were putting upon the people. Their mint tithing legalisms. which lead people to hate God, not reverence Him. Now on Tuesday during the week leading up to His crucifixion, the day after He overturns the tables and drives out the animals, Jesus is teaching the people and preaching the gospel, and the chief priests, look at the three groups that came to Him, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, those are the three parts of the Sanhedrin. All the officials are coming at Jesus. And they confront him. And they get right to the nub of their issue with him, don't they? They have watched the people hanging on him, listening, and they've got questions. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority? In other words, who who or what gives you the right to do these things? which I take to include his preaching and teaching, but also those immediate things that he had done, like the cleansing of the temple, like the overturning of the tables, like the driving out of the animals. Who or what gives you the right to do these things? They come to him and ask him that. Now let that sink in just for a moment. Who gave you this authority? Now, we also have to remember this, that these men are envious of Jesus. These men are envious of Jesus. We know from Scripture that one of the reasons he gets handed over to the authorities by the chief priests is because of envy, Mark 15, 10. They see the people hanging on him. They see them soaking in his teachings. They hear him speaking of the ways. They they see him, all the people saying he speaks with authority. And they're filled with envy. Though that certainly is the last thing that they're going to admit. They're proud. They're proud men who envy Jesus and the attention he receives. And so instead of admitting that, they seek to destroy him. But first they want to embarrass him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things as the crowd is all around them. Tell us who is the one who gave you this authority. They want him to give his credentials, which on their terms, 
he doesn't have anything to mention. Though he is the eternal son of God. They want him to name someone who has authorized him to speak, which on their terms, he doesn't have anybody he can name that would satisfy them. But his father from heaven did say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so they ask those questions of him and they, they take uh, this tact to question him about his authority. Previously, before this, they had tried to tie him up with specific doctrines, right? But now, having failed at that, they attack his calling. They go from specifics to the big picture with Jesus. Of those questions that these scribes and chief priests and elders Asked Jesus, Ryle says this, they resolved, if possible, to stop the progress of this new teacher. And the point on which they made their assault was his authority. His mighty works they ought to have examined, his teaching they ought, in all fairness, to have compared with their own scriptures, but they refused to take either one course or the other. They preferred to call in question his commission. Of these questions, Calvin says this, besides, more than enough of evidence had already been laid before them that Christ was sent from heaven so that nothing further from their wish than to approve of the performances of Christ after having learned that God was the author of them. They therefore insist on this, that he is not a lawful minister of God because he had not been chosen by their votes. And then Calvin says this, and this is the point I want to make. It was monstrous to rise up against God. It's not cute what these scribes and Pharisees are doing here. It's monstrous to rise up against God. Pull back for a moment. The Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, He by whom and through whom all things were made, the very Word of God has come among His people after taking on the likeness of sinful flesh, and He has lived among them, He's taught them, He's performed miracle after miracle, He's stilled a storm, right? He's raised people from the dead. He's healed diseases and disabilities, And part of the very creation that he made, these men, these men knit together in their mother's wombs by God, puff up their chests and ask him by what authority he is doing these things. The creature asks his creator, what gives you the right to do these things? It's the clay saying to the potter. I mean, is there any more gross display of pride than this? Yes, of course there is. They are shortly going to put him to death. And so, this is pride. 
this is pride. And we must always be on guard against our pride. God delegates his authority throughout this world, and insofar as we submit to those authorities that God has raised up, we are submitting to God. Now some of you are saying, I've just gone past where I should go. One such authority, the civil government, proves that what I said is true. Insofar as we submit to our governing authorities, assuming they are ruling properly, we are submitting to God. So says the Apostle Paul. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. So God gives us opportunity after opportunity to fight our pride by submitting to authorities like policemen and church officers and fathers and husbands and civil magistrates and mothers. Our pride blinds us to the good of authority, so much so that in the end, the only authority we are ready to recognize is that authority that the scribes recognized their own. And if the only authority you recognize is your own, I mean, I, I don't really have to spell out how terrible that is. In the end, all pride that leads us to resist God-ordained authority, as Paul states, is resistance to God himself. Here in our passage this morning, it's quite literally that. They are resisting God. The creatures try to put the creator in his place. Or not in his place. And it's horrible. And it's very horrible when I do the same thing. In my pride. And so Jesus graciously, Jesus gently, Jesus wonderfully and kindly and patiently answers their question. This is not a dodge, but an actual answer to their question. When you keep in mind what John the Baptist said about Jesus, right? What had he, as the forerunner of Jesus, said about, about him. John 1, verse 24. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know, It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. 
I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist had already answered the questions that these scribes and Pharisees had about the authority of Jesus Christ. Right? And now Jesus points them to that answer by bringing up John the Baptist that had already been given through the glorious preaching of John the Baptist. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He existed before me. He baptizes in the Holy Spirit. He is the very Son of God. If that's not an answer to the questions of these men, then there is not an answer. But their pride and their envy made them deaf. They would not listen to John, even though the the people did. They rejected this man that the people considered a prophet. So that this is why Jesus brings up John the Baptist. He, he, he was the one answering the question asked as the forerunner of the Lord. Jesus' question also puts them on the hooks of a dilemma, right? The horns of a dilemma. Which we see worked out in the next few verses. Jesus asked them if the, the baptism of repentance that all of Israel had been going out into the wilderness to receive, whether that was from heaven or from men. Was it from God and authoritative or from men and nothing? If they say it was from heaven, then Jesus has another question for them. Well, then why did you not believe him? And if they say it was from men, the people who consider John to have been a prophet are going to kill these guys. So what do they do? Verse 7. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And that is an outright untruth. They will not answer his question because to do so would be to reveal what they believed. They have seen miracles. They have witnessed the forerunner of the Lord testify to Jesus that he is the Christ. They have heard Christ's preaching, and they reject it and accuse Jesus of having a demon and try to destroy him. And so in in not answering, they will not admit they are wrong. They've got a reputation and a view and a position to protect. Ryle, reflecting on their tactic, says this, Thousands will say anything rather than acknowledge themselves to be in the wrong. And all of us get shivers when I say that because you know it's true of yourself. Lying is just one of the sins to which the human heart is most most naturally inclined and one of the commonest sins in the world. Gehazi, Ananias, and Sapphira have more followers and imitators than Peter and Paul. The number of lies which are constantly told by men to save their own credit and to cover over their own wickedness is probably far greater than we are aware. And so... This is how pride works itself out. This is how the pride of the scribes and Pharisees work itself out. We have to guide ourselves, guard ourselves from pride because the outworking of our pride is, is lies. 
It's falsehoods. It's half-truths. And here are these men, first of all, questioning their creator about his authority, and then when asked a question by him, they answer him with falsehoods. I mean, if, if you don't know this temptation, if you don't know and see this temptation worked out in your own life, then you're a robot and you have electrical circuits for veins. This is why scripture is filled with exhortations that cause us to reflect on the words of our mouths. And so often when someone else hooks us on the horns of a dilemma, right, we are unwilling to give an answer. How does Jesus respond? He does not answer. Other times when Jesus is questioned, right, and the motives of the questioner are honest, he answers. People ask Jesus questions all the time, and he gives answers. But here the questioners are trying to trap him, and he does not answer. Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things, though he has already given them an answer. Right? Was this a lost opportunity? No. They know the answer from John the Baptist. (laughs) It's been undergirded by the miracles he's done. His father has spoken from heaven, right? And so now what comes next? This parable, a parable. He's going to pound home a point by means of a parable. Jesus, the text says, told the parable to the people. It's a parable uh, about a vineyard. And any time we come across imagery of a vineyard, we should be thinking of Israel, right? One commentator says of this parable that is the history of Israel in a compendium, in a tiny little concise packet. Isaiah 5 portrays Israel as God's vineyard in verse 5, 7 says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. So these Jews, knowing the words of the prophet Isaiah, would know that in using the imagery of a vineyard, Jesus is talking about them, about this nation, and they quickly would have understood his meaning. Prophet after prophet has been sent to Israel like the slaves sent to collect some of the fruit of the vine growers in charge of the vineyard. Prophet after prophet has been rejected by the people like the slaves being beaten by the vine grower. And the rejection of the prophets grows in its vehemence, right? The first is beaten and sent away empty-handed. The second is beaten and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. The third is wounded and cast out of the vineyard. Then after prophets like those slaves have been sent, the Son of God is sent like the landowner's son. And this son is sent because he has authority as the heir of his father. Just as the Son of God has all authority in heaven and on earth. And seeing this son arrive, what do the vine growers do? They reason that if we kill him, if we kill him, land will become ours. Now that's faulty reasoning, isn't it? 
but such is the reasoning of the wicked. Right? It is illogical. It is unreasonable. It is animal-like. So, so knowing what is ahead for him, Jesus will be cast out of the vineyard and killed, just as these vine growers did to the son of the owner. And the owner of the vineyard, though, is not oblivious. He, Jesus says, will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. So how does that last verse relate to this parallel with Israel? It seems quite obvious that Jesus is speaking of the breaking off of Israel and the ingrafting of the Gentiles. And as we have seen in the immediately preceding verses, the prophecy comes true in AD 70. When Jerusalem is destroyed and the Jews are scattered and the gospel through the apostles goes where? Out to the Gentiles. Jesus is not just telling a story here. He is not joking around either. Remember what he said just a few days before this. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not... Leave in you one stone upon another. And those prideful, godless, falsehood-loving Pharisees, knowing that Jesus is talking about them and their godless nation, they get it. Verse 19, if you jump ahead, makes it clear. Exclaim this. May it never be. They've now questioned their creator. They've lied to the one who is truth. And now they accuse the last and greatest prophet of being a false prophet, of being a liar. And in just a few days, they would see that what he said of them was absolutely true. They question, they confront, they condemn, and then they finally kill Jesus. Question, confront, condemn, and kill the Son of God. And yet still, the plan of God to redeem sinful mankind is not derailed. Right? Jesus makes one last statement while turning his gaze upon the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And it is not a simple statement, verse 17. But Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Now clearly the stone which is being spoken of here is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone of the church upon whom the whole weight of the church rests. He was rejected, and nonetheless, he became the chief cornerstone. Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy of Psalm 118. But it's the next sentence that perplexes all the commentators and perplexes me. It seems that it is speaking here of two kinds of people. Those who fall on the stone, and a different category, those upon whom the stone falls. And the reason we read the passage that way is because of the the adversative conjunction there, but. But the conjunction used there can just as easily be translated and. 
And so the passage reads more as it's describing stages of one kind of person. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. In other words, falling on that stone is rejecting it, and the stone falling on the one who rejected it is the following judgment. Okay, Calvin puts it this way. Those persons are said to fall upon Christ who rush forward to destroy him, but Christ tells them that all that they will gain by it is that by the very conflict they will be broken. But when they, are, but when they have thus proudly exalted themselves, he tells them that another thing will happen which is that they will be bruised under the stone against which they so insolently dashed themselves. And Ryle makes it apply to those who reject Jesus' first coming, ultimately being judged when Jesus returns in his second coming. The ruin of the unbelievers at the first advent shall be miserable, but the ruin of the unbelievers at the second advent shall be even more miserable still. And then Hendrickson Hendrickson just very simply puts it this way. Anyone who persists in opposing Christ is going to be pulverized. And so let me end with this. These wicked men, they question, confront, condemn, and then shortly kill the Son of God. And Jesus has told them that their persistence in rejecting him will lead them to being pulverized. And, and so what are you and I to take from this? Could it be that God in his mercy is calling you to repent of your resistance to Jesus while he can still be found? Ryle, again, reminds us that we must never flatter ourselves that God cannot be angry. Of all wrath, Ryle goes on, none can be conceived so awful as the wrath of the Lamb. That stone that pulverizes. Look at what verse 19 says. These men understood that he spoke this parable against them. Don't let the parable be lost on you. God is speaking to you through his word today. And he's calling you to love the chief cornerstone, not to fight against him. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your word. We thank you for the powerful, authoritative preaching of the Son of God. I pray that you would would work this word into our hearts that we would that it would dwell richly within us and that we would meditate upon it that it would be used as part of that that glory that you've called us to by the power of the spirit to examine ourselves the lord grant to us repentance for the sins that we commit that are so much like these scribes and pharisees and elders of israel the pride the unwillingness to believe the truth, the falsehoods, the rejection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.